Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. On today's show, we'll learn how sex education is stirring controversy in Jackson after the school district invited a Christian abstinence speaker into classrooms. It is not okay to present falsehoods and misinformation as evidence-based education. We'll hear from some of Wyoming's delegation on how they're feeling about the presumptive nomination of Donald Trump for the GOP's presidential candidate and about how one computer science student is helping create a classroom where anyone, especially young women, can admit what they don't know. I just kind of said firmly, I don't understand this material. And we'll hear about the music director who's setting records as a power lifter. I was the chubby one who sang in choir. <laughs> That's all ahead on Open Spaces. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Last month, a guest speaker was invited to promote abstinence until marriage in Teton County classrooms. But it was called off after some parents complained. Then others objected to the cancellation. Weeks later, the community is urging its school board to clarify what's appropriate. That's why I mean Public Radio's Aaron Trank reports The episode shows just how controversial sex education can be, especially in a state without clear standards for how to teach it. A few weeks back, an email landed in parent Annie Band's inbox asking if she wanted to opt her child out of a presentation. My stomach kind of dropped. That's because she'd heard the speaker's name, Shelley Donahue, before and knew she had a controversial way of talking about sex. I'd already watched enough of her videos to know that her message contained a lot of misinformation, outright falsehoods, shaming, damaging language, gender stereotyping. Videos like this one, where Donahue addresses a room full of high schoolers. And so guys, we're seeing the most sexually aggressive teenage girls we've ever seen. Have you ever had a girl call you before you call her? Have you ever had a girl text you before you texted her? Have you ever had a girl touch you before you touched her? Kiss you before you kiss? I know your heads are bobbing like dogs in the back of the window. I know. Girls, you know what? That's not our job. When Band and others argued that this Christian abstinent speaker shouldn't be taking up class time, Donahue's school day talks were canceled. Still, new Teton County Superintendent Gillian Chapman is a fan of Donahue's approach. She and the chair of the school board saw Donahue speak at a crisis pregnancy center fundraiser last year. I was impressed with her, um, her ability to connect with students. Chapman says she didn't think the presentations planned for groups of 8th through 12th graders would cause an uproar because Donahue had spoken at the district two years back. And no complaints or concerns from parents or students. And the opportunity uh, was presented that she could come back. It didn't cost the district anything. It certainly was an appropriate message for students to hear. The Crisis Pregnancy Center footed the bill. About half of states require schools to teach sex ed. Wyoming does not. Teton County, unlike many districts, chooses to provide a comprehensive safe sex program. We do provide an evidence-based program, and you know, Shelley Donahue's presentation is one very small component. Chapman says they're not just presenting abstinence. 
Students learn about topics like contraception, STDs, and consent through a curriculum called Making Proud Choices. When groups like the U.S. Health Department have evaluated that program, they found it to be evidence-based, meaning it's been proven to reduce risky sexual behavior in teens. Chapman says it's okay to throw a little abstinence education into the mix. Abstinence works. <laughs> if, if you don't have sex, you don't get pregnant and you don't get sexually transmitted diseases. But the majority of studies show that abstinence-only sex education doesn't work because it doesn't actually convince kids to not have sex. Still, speakers like Donahue have been preaching in public schools for decades, backed by federal dollars. Donahue says when Clinton and Bush were in the White House, she was visiting about 100 schools a year. And then 2008 came, President Obama was elected. He took the majority of the abstinence money. Donahue has spent most of her career teaching a curriculum called weight training. Groups that promote comprehensive sex ed have reviewed the program and concluded it was based on fear, shame, misinformation, and gender stereotyping. While Donahue is a Christian, she says she gives a secular version of her talk to public school crowds. I don't have to quote a scripture. I don't have to say the, the verse. Kids get truth. Truth is truth, whether I say the scripture that's related to it or not. Donahue argues she's had to adhere to scientific standards to get federal grant money. There are hundreds of abstinence-only programs, but the U.S. Health Department has found just three to be evidence-based, and Donahue's isn't one of them. Still, her brand of sex ed is pretty common around the country, so Donahue says she was surprised by the reaction in Jackson. Give me a break. I'm just astounded. I have never gotten this pushback, ever. The only reason I've ever been canceled is because of a blizzard. Some parents weren't happy that Donahue's message wasn't heard during school hours, like Gloria Corser, who has two daughters in the school district. Donahue was still allowed to give an evening talk, and Corser went. I thought it was a fantastic, supportive, full-of-value discussion that I would love for my daughters to hear. Corser even filed a petition with the school board, arguing that students should be able to hear all viewpoints in school including Donahue's. I thought there's a really good case here for some constitutional questions to come up. And if you are going to open the school to behavioral discussions about sex, you need to consider all value systems. Courser says students should be exposed to competing ideas in school and make up their own minds about what to think. Some school board members agree with that. But parent Annie Band says freedom of speech has its limits. That doesn't mean that every person with every, you know, opinion can spout their brand of reality as curriculum in a public school. Band filed a petition of her own, asking the school board to investigate Donahue's invitation and review sex ed policies. It is not okay to present falsehoods and misinformation as evidence-based education. And if someone agrees with that statement and they remain silent on the issue, then they are complicit in the problem. Teton County School District is now reviewing its policies for bringing in guest speakers to avoid future controversy. But until Wyoming or more local school districts establish clear standards for what students should learn about sex, these sorts of debates are bound to keep popping up. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
Donald Trump wasn't the first choice of Wyoming's congressional delegation, but now that he's the presumed Republican nominee, they're all embracing him in their own way. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington on the debate in the GOP over their party's controversial standard bearer. Wyoming's junior Senator John Barrasso is a part of the Republican leadership team in the Senate, so he was inside Thursday's meeting in Washington with Donald Trump. That doesn't mean Barrasso necessarily wants to stop and talk about Trump. We had a very good, productive meeting, and uh, I'm late for another one right now. We didn't let up, though, and pressed Barrasso on whether a Trump presidency is good for the West or not. He absolutely is very focused on American energy and using energy as a master resource, and we not can't uh, uh, do what President Obama has been doing in terms of uh, preventing us from using our energy resources. But the senator did not give specifics. The key question Brasso wouldn't stop to answer is whether Trump is good for the Republican Party, or for that matter, the conservative brand. A handful of Republicans, including House Speaker Paul Ryan, are not convinced he is. Republican Carlos Corbello represents a purple district in South Florida. He's opposed to Trump and presumed Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton, but he worries Trump will only create deeper rifts amongst voters. We have someone who uh, continues uh, dividing the country through uh, very um, tough rhetoric, offensive to some people, so I, I just don't feel good about our choices right now. Republican Charlie Dent is known as a pragmatic moderate who represents an industrial part of Pennsylvania. For now, he opposes Trump, in part because he says all he hears is rhetoric. Up to this point, we haven't heard a lot of policy specifics, and the few that we've heard have been you know, often conflicted. With their traditional conservative values, Wyoming lawmakers couldn't be more different than Trump if they tried. Still, each member of the delegation has their own reason for backing Trump now that he's all but the inevitable GOP nominee. For Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis, it's an easy choice. If I had to name six words that describe why I'm going to support Donald Trump, it's Supreme Court, Supreme Court, Supreme Court. That doesn't mean Lummis is going to give Trump a pass on some of his more inflammatory comments. She says she's concerned that his rhetoric is pretty anti-woman. I don't like that at all. I, it, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the way that he uh, confronts uh, women, talks about women, uh, deals with women to whom he's not related. Lama says Trump could mitigate his past sexist remarks by surrounding himself with strong conservative women on the campaign trail or in his cabinet. Then there's Wyoming senior Senator Mike Enzi. He's a serious policy guy, but he brushes aside the bombast of Trump. I think that he probably hired a lot of people to figure out how he could turn the campaign into a reality show, because he's done reality shows. And since there aren't any journalists at the national level, they allowed him to do that. Reality shows get big crowds. And Enzi says Trump is showing signs of improvement since basically wrapping up the nomination. I, I think that he'll do what needs to be done. And I think he's shown that. I don't approve of the methods necessarily. But uh, you've certainly got to agree that there's been some progress there. But for Enzi, Trump's biggest asset to the GOP and the nation is his business experience. We're going to need somebody that knows how to deal with big numbers and a lot of people. We're going to, we have 96,000 employees working for the government just in the District of Columbia. And we better have somebody that knows how to organize and run big organizations. And... Uh, I think Trump has that capability. He's worked with big organizations. Trump is an easy favorite to win Wyoming, but in key swing states, he's still got to win over independents, minorities, and female voters if he wants to move into the White House.
That's what's got Republican, conservative, and evangelical leaders nationwide worried. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Coming up, the debate over climate change morphs and an interview with U.S. House candidate Leland Christensen. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. The debate about whether or not humans are warming the planet is essentially over. 97% of climate scientists agree that we are. But the debate over tactics, how to reduce our carbon emissions, is just starting to heat up. For Inside Energy, Amy Martin explains. The 2014 People's Climate March in New York City was a watershed moment for climate change activists. Over 300,000 people attended the march, and hundreds of small local groups suddenly saw their work as part of a broad social movement. The momentum continued to build as climate groups successfully lobbied to shut down the Keystone XL pipeline and helped push the federal government to place a moratorium on new coal leases. In the next two weeks, grassroots activists will be rallying again with a series of protests around the world aimed at convincing governments and industry to limit fossil fuel development. We have to keep almost all the oil and gas and coal that we know about underground. It's the only place that's safe for it. Bill McKibben is the co-founder of 350.org, an international climate activist group. He maintains the slogan, keep it in the ground, shouldn't be political. The thing of it is that it's not like a great ideological contest, or at least it shouldn't be. It really is just math. That math looks like this. If fossil fuel industries develop all their known resources worldwide, three times more carbon will be released into the air than the atmosphere can handle. Those numbers come from a study in the journal Nature and from a climate change think tank called Carbon Tracker. So what does emitting the carbon from all those known resources actually mean, according to McKibben? If you follow their stated business plan, the planet tanks. That's why McKibben and others are demanding that those business plans change. But even among people who agree with that goal, there's controversy about how to make it happen. Economist Lucas Davis researches energy and environmental markets at UC Berkeley. He doesn't see the need for all the marching and the chanting. Instead, he believes there's a more efficient choice. I feel like we could just get together and pass a carbon tax. Davis is concerned that the current tactics of the climate change movement divert attention away from something more effective and realistic, putting a price on carbon. Rather than pushing governments and industry to limit fossil fuel supply, Davis says we should just decrease demand by making fossil fuels more expensive. That would reduce emissions and generate revenue. We could raise money with a carbon tax and put that towards education or technology R&D, our infrastructure investments, or any number of investments that would make our economy stronger and make people better off. But try getting a new tax through Congress. Previous attempts have gone nowhere, including one last June. Davis thinks we should keep trying, 
but he admits that the carbon tax has an image problem. Yeah, who was the idiot who decided to call this a carbon tax? That was the first mistake. He says the concept needs a new name, such as carbon fee. And boy, we've got a lot of good people who do marketing. Get some of them working on how to pitch this to a general audience. This is much more important than selling toilet paper. Much more important, perhaps, but also much more difficult, according to Lena Moffat of the Sierra Club's Dirty Fuels campaign. The Sierra Club is another leading organization in the climate change movement, and like 350.org, they support a carbon tax. But Moffat says the choice is not smart legislation or a mass protest. She thinks we need both. If we're not out there making a whole lot of noise and demanding this action and saying that we're willing to disrupt our daily lives, get out in the streets, get arrested, and do something pretty dramatic, the other side is definitely going to win. While the movement continues to debate its tactics, the chant, keep it in the ground, will be heard in at least 12 countries over the next two weeks, including Turkey, Nigeria, and the Philippines. In the United States, Los Angeles will be the focus point, with smaller demonstrations planned in cities across the country. For Inside Energy, I'm Amy Martin. State Senator Leland Christensen is among the Republican candidates hoping to replace Congressman Cynthia Lummis in the U.S. House of Representatives. Lummis announced late last year she would not seek re-election, and it led to a surge of interest in her seat. Christensen has an extensive political background as both a Teton County Commissioner and a state senator. Currently, he chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee. He served as a law enforcement officer for 20 years and in the military for 15. Like many of the candidates, he told me he thinks the Obama administration has hurt Wyoming through regulations, especially the energy industry. You know, um, no, I think uh, regulation and uh, cleaning up and improving and doing better is, is the goal that we all should be looking for. And um, as we learn and science uh, makes progress, we can raise the bar. However, what we've seen, particularly with the coal industry, it wasn't, uh, in hindsight, it wasn't about raising the bar to improve. It was about a level that was unachievable. And six years ago, when I came to the legislature, um, the idea was we're um, going to be improving and we're being challenged and uh, we can do this. And within a couple of years, you started to hear the talk that uh, this isn't really achievable anymore. It keeps changing on us. And now, in hindsight, those standards were uh, put together in a way that really uh, not just made it unachievable for the industry, but it also took away the uh, opportunities for financing and for future planning and future leases. Mm -hmm. Wait, where, where do you come down on you know, whether it's global warming or climate change, whatever the, the name that you prefer is, where do you come down on that? I mean, are there some things we should be doing as a country? And, and I guess what's, what's, where does it get too far for you? You know, I think we should always be striving to do better, to clean things up, to leave a, a, a smaller mark on the land. And we've certainly seen that in Wyoming. Um, 
but to uh, give mankind the credit for the changes, um, I think we may be that may be a little ambitious. Um, when you look at the records that have been presented out there for uh, temperature changes, climate changes, and so forth, back from the early recordings of American history, um, what you see is it's not the hottest and it's not the coldest, it's not the driest and it's not the wettest. But weather is always changing, and the climate does move back and forth. But uh, regardless of that, I think our our goal should always be improving. Mm-hmm. Leland Christensen visiting with us. He is one of the candidates running for the U.S. House of Representatives. Want to ask you disdain on this topic about coal. Do you see a way to to turn things around for this industry? I do. I do. I think. Uh, We've got to get back and look at the regulations that have been levied and uh, figure out which ones serve the industry and which ones are designed to uh, shut it down. And then we get out there and start working with other like-minded congressmen around the country because we're not the only ones experiencing this. And then uh, a lot of those regulations, they actually uh, can reach over and be applied into the gas and oil industry also. And so we build, we build a consensus. We build a group of people that have similar concerns. This state has spent a lot of money, and, uh, and I guess maybe I'm a penny pitcher, but it sure seems like we've spent a lot of money on clean coal research and, and that sort of thing. Are you, are you a fan of that? Is that something the state should be involved in? Or, and, and I ask this in such a way that is this something we should be pushing Congress or the federal government to be more involved in? because they're going to have bigger research dollars than we are as a state. You know, if you look at the stabilizing influence that coal has been to uh, uh, electrical generation, the cost and the reliability, I think we need to be very, very careful before we uh, assume that things won't change if we restrict the coal supply. Um, So that opportunity to look at this and try and figure out how to clean things up, how to become more efficient, new uses, I absolutely think we need to be on that track. Um, There's enough energy under the ground that uh, I don't believe for a moment that it's just going to be held forever underground. I think uh, this may be more of a a, a push to change it for a while and then someone else will jump in. And rather than um, Wyoming suffering with those waves, I think we need to be at the forefront pushing to keep the conversation common sense and uh, headed for positive outcomes. State Senator Leland Christensen visiting with us. Again, he's one of the candidates running for the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, This is probably something, a topic near and dear to your heart. You've spent uh, a lot of time, as you mentioned, in the legislature, but also as a Teton County Commissioner and Endangered Species Act. Are you comfortable with what we have right now, or are there changes you'd like to see? You know, the Endangered Species Act... uh, it's been 25 years, I believe, since it was reauthorized, and so it's really had a, a good examination. Right now, Wyoming has 23 different uh, plants, animals, or habitats that are on the study list. And uh, if my memory serves me right, we've really only had about a 2% success rate. It's one of those things that's easy to get on and nearly impossible to get out. It's that Hotel California complex. And... Um, So I think we need to do better with the Endangered Species Act. Make sure that it's really accomplishing the original mission. But um, if you can get on it, there needs to be a way you can get off of it. And we've not seen that in Wyoming. 
of the candidates I've spoken to, we've we've got a ra- range of answers on that. Some people would like to gut it. Some people would like to uh, uh, start from scratch. Some people think there are reforms. I guess where do you come down on this? I think there's great opportunity for improvement. None of us want to be uh, at the helm when we lose a species. Um, but when you see some of the extreme examples and how they're being used for a political agenda, that's where I think it's, it's uh, strayed, gone off course, and we need to bring that back. I want to ask you to change gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act. And uh, that's uh, one I know up where you live uh, in uh, that part of the state. Uh, lots of discussion, lots of debate on this particular issue. What would you like to see happen there? The Affordable Care Act, while I will, uh, I'll tell you, I've had friends approach me and say that for the first time, they have insurance and they haven't had it for a long time. The other side of that coin, though, is I think our options have been reduced. The price of health care seems to have gone up across the board and to the point where um, there are a lot of people and friends included that start spitting out numbers that are stunning and you don't know how they can possibly do it. And, And a number of them have just said, we're checking out. And whether they're getting their health care in foreign countries, I know some of them do that um, because of the price and the, uh, the whole system, the way it's working. We've got to do something different. Do you, do you get rid of it entirely or, or what do you think? I think uh, at this point, uh, I'm for uh, the repeal. I'm repeal and we find a way that opens the market up, that gets uh, the free market back in with the competi- competition more affordable for the individual and for small businesses. If you look at the business mandates and how small businesses are now gaming the system in order to stay in business, you know, by reducing hours and uh, instead of following a, a business model, they've followed a model that allows them to survive under Obamacare. Well, I guess one of the concerns that people do have is if you get rid of the Affordable Care Act, it throws everything into a chaos, and, and you may have some of your friends, as you talked about, that finally have insurance, losing that insurance. How do you resolve those issues, I guess? Well, no one said it's going to be easy, um, but I, I do believe that uh, when you get together and start working on things like this, you'll find the good, good resolutions. Um, if you remember back, the whole idea of let's vote on it so we can see what's in it and how it has evolved and the promises that were made. Um, they just don't pan out. And so now to accept that as the norm, I don't think we need to. I think we can do better. State Senator Leland Christensen, again, he's one of the candidates running for the U.S. House of Representatives. Always nice chatting with you. Thank you for coming in. It's good to see you, Bob, and uh, we live in a great state. It's good to be here. Next on the show, how the energy downturn is affecting one stretch of highway in North Dakota and how a UW freshman is helping young women speak up in science classrooms. You're listening to Open Spaces.
Welcome to Open Spaces for Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Energy towns like Gillette and Douglas, like so many others across the country, are changing under the pressure of persistently low prices for coal, oil, and gas. In North Dakota, an oil boom town called Dickinson is in a very different place than it was two years ago when it was one of the fastest growing cities in the country. Since then, the price of oil has fallen by more than 50%. Nowhere are signs of the slowdown more visible than along Dickinson's Highway 22. Inside Energy's Emily Guerin went on a road trip and has this report. Let's start on the north end of town, where the oil-fueled sprawl of new apartments and industrial parks fades into what Western North Dakota used to look like, rolling prairie and wheat fields. One of these fields has become a kind of graveyard for drilling rigs. Gosh, how many drilling rigs are there? They're sitting idle. It's called stacked, waiting for the price of oil to rise. One, two, three. The rigs look like a platoon of skeletons standing in neat rows behind a chain link fence. We pulled off the highway to get a better look. There's 27 behind me, we just counted. And that's actually about the same amount that are actively drilling for oil in North Dakota. Two years ago, when the price of oil was high, there were over 180. Every time a drilling rig gets stacked, about 120 people lose their jobs. Kaylee Haugen's husband was one of them. He was on a rig for, I wanna say 11 years. He was very good at his job as a well site geologist, but even that doesn't save you when the price of oil is is down that far. Nationwide, there have been nearly 100,000 oil field layoffs in the past two years. In the pants were just a little too long. Haugen just opened up her own business last year, a few miles from the rig graveyard. And now the waste is good, but they're still too long, and I'm like, selling flame-resistant clothing for the oil field. She just missed the tail end of the oil boom, and things have been very slow. And when we do have customers, they are looking for more of the bargain clothing. You know, some of the sweatshirts can range from $230. Those ones are not moving as quickly right now. We turned south out of Kaylee Haugen's parking lot onto Highway 22 and headed towards town. We drove past hotel after hotel, muddy trucks and their half-empty parking lots. Dickinson added almost a thousand hotel rooms in the past five years, and for a while, it seemed like a good move. When I got here in March of 14, there were no vacancies. Bill Evans does maintenance at three small hotels in Dickinson. If somebody checked out, you probably already had somebody's name who was waiting on that room. You would have been paying $80 a night for a single. That was cheap. And now you can get a room for $32 a night. You know, that's a big change. Connie Hank is the hotel's general manager. She says they're at just 30% occupancy. I'm sitting here waiting, praying that a car pulls into my parking lot. And we look like a bunch of vultures. The minute they walked in the door, I was like, hey, thank you for coming here, you know. All those oil field layoffs have actually been good for other businesses along Highway 22, like TMI Systems. They make custom cabinets and countertops. At the height of the boom, they lost over 60 employees to the oil field. People like Scott Wine. We would put oil into tank cars at uh, 20 barrels per minute. That's a lot of fluid uh, being transferred. A lot of things can go wrong in a shorter period of time. The jobs were better paid, but way more stressful. Wind is back building cabinets now, along with nine other former employees. He misses the high paychecks, but he doesn't miss the frenzy. 
which sums up how many people feel about the downturn here along Highway 22. They'd like to see the oil field come back, but not quite as crazy as it was before. You can order when you're ready. On my way out of town, we swung by the Taco Bell to see how things changed there. Hi, can I get an order of nachos, please? Two years ago, this drive through was the only way to order food at Taco Bell. They didn't have enough workers to staff the inside seating area. Now, due to the oil field layoffs, Taco Bell is fully staffed. And is there anything else that I can get for you today? No, that's it. Inside and out. For Inside Energy, I'm Emily Guerin. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. get women interested in computer science is a question many universities are still grappling with. The University of Wyoming is doing pretty well in that area. Around 20 percent of its 283 computer science students are women, slightly higher than the national average. But at least according to one freshman, one thing that could make the field even more appealing to women is creating an environment where it's okay to admit what you don't know. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard reports. When computer science freshman Catherine Clennon sent an email to her professor explaining what she hoped to get out of an upcoming internship, she didn't think much of it. Really quickly, it took about 20 minutes, I sat down and just, you know, word vomited onto the page and I sent it to him. And he was so moved by it that he responded to me saying, oh, we should do a blog for the internship. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. And then I just set it up and then published it and it just went viral. The essay that came from that email titled Being a Dumb Girl in Computer Science, was reposted on Hacker News and Reddit, and eventually picked up by the Huffington Post. So far, it's been viewed tens of thousands of times. In the piece, Clennon details how she made the decision to routinely speak up in class when she doesn't understand a concept. The post culminates with Clennon and another female student confronting a teaching assistant over confusing instructions. Right then, I just kind of said firmly, I don't understand this material. I don't understand how you're explaining it to me. And I think the way that I said it, you know, I didn't stand up and shout or anything, but I said it loud enough that other people in the room could hear me. Loud enough, Clennon says, that the teaching assistant's manner completely changed and other students in the lab became involved in helping them understand. Clennon's essay has already had an immediate impact in UW's computer science department. Teaching assistants will be required to read Being a Dumb Girl in Computer Science for the fall 2016 orientation. Assistant Professor Jeff Clune is the one who suggested Clennon publish the essay. He says using it in training is a great idea. Because there's a very big difference between standing in front of a room and saying we need to make things more welcoming and we need to encourage people to ask questions uh, and hearing the first person perspective that Catherine wrote, this kind of raw emotional story where you get inside of her head and you struggle with her. An environment that discourages speaking up is especially detrimental to female computer science students who tend to come into college with less programming experience. Clune says professors should be encouraging students to speak up when they get something wrong. You tried something, it didn't work. 
Like, that's great. That's a fantastic thing. And we should encourage the fact that you tried and even encourage the fact that it failed and you didn't work um, to try to kind of create this culture of that being a fun part of the process. Clennon says she's interested in creating a computer program for beginners in computer science that addresses failure in this kind of positive way. If you could set up a program that rewards just how many times you try, I think what you would see is that the levels of, you know, skill would even out. Clennon volunteers at the Laramie Robotics Club, an after-school club where middle and high schoolers can program computers and robots. Right now, she's helping 7th grader Mimi Tan build a snowman graphic with code. Sometimes I do trial and error for um, this, so yeah. So you're just trying to play around with the numbers to find, okay, as long as you're learning. She hopes to pilot her computer program in the Laramie Robotics Club next fall and to continue with the blog, encouraging others to speak up when they don't understand. I can't speak for women as a group. I can only speak for myself, and that's what helped me. You know, chances are there's a lot of people that feel the same way I do. And Clennon will have plenty of time to reach out to those people. After all, she's only a freshman. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. Part of the show, we'll talk to a music director who also happens to be a champion weightlifter. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. For many years, the University of Wyoming choir programs have been recognized as among the best in the country. Since 2008, Dr. Nicole Lamartine has been the director of choral activities, and she's so highly thought of that she conducts and gives seminars around the world. And she's a highly regarded singer in her own right. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports, she also has a hidden talent. <laughs> Relax the corners of your mouth inwards. Here we go. Two. This is the singing statesman at the University of Wyoming rehearsing before a recent performance. They are under the direction of one of the top conductors in the country. Nicole Lamartine, and I'm director of choral activities at the University of Wyoming. And you're a weightlifter. And I'm a weightlifter. <laughs> I guess so. And a pretty good one. Here she is conducting a back squat workout where she squats with a barbell loaded with heavy weight across her back. currently holds the world record by squatting 265 pounds. Here's the thing. She's slightly over 4 feet 11 inches tall, weighs 121 pounds, and she's in her 40s. Being an athlete is also a relatively new thing for her. I was the chubby one who sang in choir. <laughs> 
but you know, I'm blessed with great genes. I get these tree trunk legs from my dad and my broad shoulders from my mom, and I guess I just have some good genes. <laughs> Things changed in 2011 when her husband convinced her to try CrossFit. I loved the, the mental aspect of it, that you have to be so focused for a short time, you know, and you know the pain's gonna be over, and every workout is a challenge, and I discovered a lot about myself in terms of what I could do physically and what I had to do mentally. It was great. LaMartine eventually became a CrossFit trainer and then moved into powerlifting. That went okay. After her first meet, she qualified for the national competition. For her age group, she holds national records in the bench press and deadlift and, as mentioned, the world record in the back squat. To be able to accomplish a goal or to try a weight that I've never tried before in competition and do it, oh my gosh, it's the best feeling ever. Her coach, Don Robbins, has been amazed by her progress. You, you wonder about things like her age. You know, she's, uh, she's 40 years old, and, you know, the fact that she's able to do these things and at that age is, is, is really surprising. To me, the age factor is much uh, more surprising than, than the size. Robbins says she's far from her peak. He predicts that when she competes in the national competition in July, she'll set even more records. University of Wyoming Music Department Chair Teresa Bogard is not surprised by any of this. It's this energy, but coupled with the strive for excellence. And I think that's probably why she's been so successful in her weightlifting as well. It's the same kind of personality trait that makes her wonderful in every part of her life. In both music and weightlifting, Lamartine says breath is key. In choir, we make our, our sounds through our voices, and it's powered by our breath. And here in the gym, if I'm not breathing well, I don't lift well. So it's just corroborated my, my thought that breath is this driving life force, no matter what the context. Martine is affectionately known as Dr. Law around the music department, and her singers rave about the influence she's had on them and the energy she brings to every rehearsal. Senior Michael Morgan says they know all about the weightlifting. I think it's great. I love it. I love it. I, as soon as I learned that she was into the weightlifting thing, we, uh, we got together during one of our, uh, what was it, a retreat, and we made her bench press one of the smaller guys because she knew, we knew she could do it. We wanted to see it. So it was great. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. A new memoir tells the story of youthful rebellion in Rock Springs. Writer J.J. Anselmi recalls growing up in the hard-scrabble mining town on a steady diet of drugs, vandalism, heavy metal, and tattoos. But this story of teenage angst also explores Rock Springs' history. Wyoming Public Radio's Nathan Martin reports. When he was a teenager, J.J. Anselmi covered his body with tattoos of his favorite bands, Metallica, Pantera, 
Black Sabbath. They represented the anger he felt growing up. But a few years later, Anselmi began having his tattoos surgically cut from his skin. And so I guess it's kind of a metaphor for the book as a whole, of looking at the binary of creation and destruction, and so creation being getting the tattoos and then destruction, you know, having them removed in this kind of grotesque way. Anselmi's new book, Heavy, a memoir of Wyoming, BMX, drugs, and heavy f***ing music, is about personal transformation. Today, he lives in St. Paul, Minnesota. He says writing the book allowed him to process the things about Rock Springs he despised, the provincialism, the good old boys, the lack of places for young people to go. But it also involved being honest about his own shortcomings. For me, that really entailed, you know, realizing just what a jerk I had been in many ways. Rock Springs in the early 2000s had little to offer teenagers like Anselmi, who would rather play rock music than football, or would rather ride a BMX bike than a bucking bronc. So he and his friends organized their own concerts in odd venues like the town's old train station. Bands just completely out of their own volition, getting a show together and making it happen in a place where, you know, there wasn't really a space for it. Riding BMX bikes gave Anselmi and his friends another outlet for their wild energy. They rode in public places, sometimes damaging property. They thought the skate park the town had built was a joke. So Anselmi and his friends built their own BMX ramps. The Span brothers had this huge garage, and their dad was insanely cool and supportive. And he just let us build our own skate park. But Anselmi's youth of BMX and heavy metal is only half the story. Heavy is also about Rock Springs and the Anselmi family's place in it. The Anselmi name is still associated with prominent businesses in town a bank, a hotel, a major apartment complex. And when 60 Minutes came to Rock Springs in 1977 to expose the town's corruption and vice, Anselmi's grandfather was at the center of it. In one episode, Dan Rather looks at Rock Springs' seedy underbelly. How basically K Street was kind of this, you know, open boulevard for prostitution and the cops would let it happen. The following week, the show turned its attention toward higher levels of graft. And so the one about my grandpa was more about um, money laundering uh, in connection to the governor at the time and um, kind of shady real estate dealings and stuff like that. Anselmi says rumors of his family's mob connections followed him through high school, 30 years later. But even though Rock Springs was a tough place for him to grow up, he says the town taught him a do-it-yourself ethos he wouldn't have learned anywhere else. And that's given him a new appreciation for the place that he couldn't escape fast enough. If I could go back and kind of tell myself something while I was growing up there, it would be, you know, be glad actually that you're from here and look at, you know, maybe some some of the more generic um, suburbs and stuff like that throughout the country and how there's this, this kind of like beige, you know, almost like static existence um, and appreciate that you're from a place that's as crazy and unique as Rock Springs. Today, Anselmi teaches English at a community college and plays drums for two heavy metal bands. He has no plans to move back to Wyoming, but he'll continue to write about it. He says his next project will look at Rock Springs again and focus even more intently on his family's checkered role in the town's history. The narrative that they would tell was always, you know, the 60 Minutes episode and all that stuff. It's just, it's just complete, um, you know, bold. I think the truth is uh, maybe not quite in the middle, but, you know, definitely more tinges of shadiness with my grandpa than my family told me about. For someone who was so angry about growing up in Wyoming, Anselmi sure is getting a lot of literary mileage out of it. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Nathan Martin.
And speaking of teenagers and BMX bikes, Riverton is about to open a new skate and BMX park next month. The new Tyler Ray Apodaca Skate Park will have its grand opening on June 18th. You've been listening to Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear parts of it again, it's all available on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. On that site, you can listen to old shows, pitch us stories for future programs, and link to our podcast. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.